In this upcoming podcast episode, we address a central question. How coachable are you? Let's go. Welcome to the Russell Westcott Podcast, helping real estate investors like you acquire the inspiration, knowledge, and skills that you need to start, grow, and scale the real estate investing portfolio of your dreams. Hey, everybody. How's it going? Welcome back to the podcast. So we're firmly into season number two of the podcast and sure hope you're enjoying the first episodes that have just come out and so much more to follow. So guys, before we dive into it, um, I have another episode that I'm going to share with you here where I was a guest on somebody else's podcast. And it was just such a fantastic conversation. And I just wanted to share that out on my podcast. And the podcast host that interviewed me gave me permission to share that out as well. But I'm going to put a new opening, a new closing, add a little bit of, you know, additional context to the conversation or maybe a little bit, a couple additional learnings. After I've had a chance to review it and go over it, I can add a little bit more depth to what we're going to talk about here in this upcoming conversation. So first of all, this is Gary Hibbert who is, has a wonderful podcast called, I believe it's called Real Talk with Gary. And Gary has a wonderful podcast and he's interviewed the likes of Les Brown and Brett Wilson, some, some heavy hitters on his podcast. And I opened up to this episode with Gary. I'm, I'm, I'm a little nervous here with all the heavy hitters you got on here. I'm just going to try to do my best on having this wonderful conversation. So I have a little bit of in-depth lesson and some stories I'm going to share with you before we get into the conversation with Gary and I. But first of all, what Gary and I talked about. So on this podcast, we dove into some topics that I haven't shared before. A few stories, I think only within maybe a few a very inner circle of people who know me personally know a few of these stories. And I shared, you know, some challenges with uh, mental illness. I shared some struggles, some depressions. I shared um, some of the stories that a lot of people don't share. So as real estate is, it's the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I went into, in some cases in this point, were the downright ugly points in the journey. And you know what? Quite honestly, I have a feeling probably over this past year, this is coming out in 2021, I probably had another undiagnosed depression, if I was truly being honest with myself, of was just in a funk, was just so stuck and I just could not get going. I tried everything I possibly could to just get going. And sometimes you just, when you're stuck, you're stuck. And you just have to just power through it. You just have to get back to the fundamentals. You just have to get back into eating better, getting sleep, self-care, reducing the stress, getting back into just calming things down, and then just start moving forward. We're just getting a few things done one step at a time. Okay, so those are some of the things we talk about. Obviously, we talk about the real estate market. We talk about that, but we get a lot more into personal development side in this conversation. And that's what I love about some of these conversations is we can go any any direction. I'm very open to whatever direction the host wants to take it. And I'm very comfortable to just have that wonderful conversation about go where we need to go. Okay. So what you will find towards the end of this episode that Gary and I had this conversation is we talked a lot about coaching. We talked an awful lot about kind of a thought process, a methodology about coaching. Okay. So here's a couple things I'm going to, and I'm going to add to it in this opening context with you. So if you're interested in getting coaching, coaching is sometimes right now, everybody thinks it's really kind of in vogue is, well, I've got a coach. I've got a coach here. I've got a coach here. I've got a coach there. Everybody's talking about they have coaching. 
But if you have you thought about and giving some very critical thinking about what the coach is to help you with and what also as importantly is what you are going to provide to the coach as well. So couple things. So let's talk about, here's one thing I can just say about coaching as a, just to start off is I believe there, it's interesting. I just saw this just recently in a book that I just read and it's called Your Next Five Moves by Patrick Bet David. If any of you guys are looking for a next book referral, highly, highly recommend Patrick Bet David. He's the, uh, if you look up on YouTube, Valuetainment, I believe is his YouTube channel. Patrick Bet David, your next five moves. And he talks about the three types of coaches that are out there. So the three types, I'll just name the three of them first. They are the coaches of theory, they are coaches that are witnesses, and they are coaches of application. Now, here's the thing is, all three layers of these coaches are 100% value. While all three layers of the theory, the witness, and the application can provide value to you. Each one of those classification of a coach can help you move forward. But just understand what you're, what you're getting into when you do get into coaching. So first of all, a theory coach. A theory coach is maybe somebody who has read all the books, has attended all the seminars, and they know a lot of the materials that they're teaching you and coaching you on in theory. Okay. But doesn't mean that they're a bad coach. They can 100% help you move along. If they know more theory than you do, you will 100% be moved along by what they know. You will learn what they know. Okay. So that's level number one. Level number two is a witness. So for example, here would be a witness coach would be someone who's sitting there going, you know what? I studied under the best of the best. I studied under the top real estate investment agent in Calgary, Alberta. I studied under them for 15 years and here's all the things I know and I'm going to teach you and all the things I learned from that person. So they were witness to all of that. Maybe they worked for that person. Maybe they worked alongside them. They are a witness to it. They have a lot of the theory. They also have witnessed it being done. And then the third type is one that would be called the application coach, is a coach that has actually applied the theory, applied what they learn, and applied it into real life. They've executed against it. They have real-world experience. Okay, so that's theory, witness, and application. Now, if you can find the rare combination of somebody who has all three of those, a theory coach, a witness coach, and an application coach. If you can find all three of those combined into one package, you've got yourself a winning combination. Now, I'll tell you, a person that is a theory coach, witness coach, and an application coach all wrapped in one will probably be a very in-demand coach, will probably be somebody who has a lot to offer you, but also will be somebody that might be hard to get to. It might be quite an investment to get to that person as well. But I would highly encourage you to seek out that person because they will have the wisdom, the theory, and the application that you're looking for to help you move forward. Okay, now one final thing that I just want to share is the question that I let off in the tease is how coachable are you? Is a question that I ask all the time of the people that I am coaching. Because what I want to see when I'm working with somebody is they need to be coachable, first and foremost. If they're not coachable, the exercise, us working together probably won't work. Because you know what? What do you need me for? You got all the answers. You, you know everything. You're not coachable. You're not open to new ideas. You're not wanting to look at something completely different from a new perspective. 
quick story. I was sitting there scrolling through a couple Facebook groups and I saw this post of this person putting on there and they said there, I thought it was something about, you know, wanting to take things to the next level. Now I'm looking for a coach and a guide and a mentor. Now here's all the things I'm looking for. Here's what you need to do, provide to me. Here's everything you need for me to work with you. Here's everything you have to do for me. And it was, it was, I was, as I was reading it, I was sitting there going, I go, geez, that person might actually have a hard time finding a really good coach because they're really just, you know, first of all, congratulations for putting it out there, laying it on the line, putting it out and clearly articulating what you're looking for. But a really good coach might actually read that and read all that and say, geez, this person, are they coachable? Would be the first question is, are they willing to do the work? Are they committed or are they just putting it all on the coach to do all the work? And they're, if it doesn't work, well, that's the coach's fault. It's a very slippery slope when you do that. One of the things that I firmly believe when I'm working with somebody is that the people that I work with, my goal for them is for them to have greater results than I've ever have done. Because that is the true relationship that you have with a coach, is the coach is to inspire greatness in you. The coach is to inspire leaders to lead other people. And that's actually one of my pure mandates that I have within my coaching is that my goal after I'm done with somebody, maybe they've graduated, is I've inspired a leader to go out and lead others and help others and coach others to inspire greatness in them because then they've done better than their coach, which has then done better than myself. Okay, so it is truly not about the coach. It's not about the ego. It's about inspiring the greatness in the people you work with to help you move forward. Okay, now, one final thing I'm going to dive into, and this might be just a little bit of a tangent, is sometimes you'll see an awful lot out there about that the coach has to have more experience than I do. The coach has to be no or do more action out there in the marketplace than I do. Now, I'm going to share a couple examples for you. Many of you have probably, if you've been following along on my podcast, you will probably have heard the name Tim Grover, wrote the book Relentless, and sitting on my desk here is the book Winning by Tim S. Grover. Uh, Tim S. Grover is a fantastic author, fantastic coach. He is arguably um, one of the greatest influences on Michael Jordan to make him a great basketball player. Okay. And when Michael Jordan's on his Hall of Fame speech credits Tim Grover to uh, a lot of the success that he has as a basketball player. If you've read any of Tim's works, you'll, you will know that Tim Grover did not make it as a basketball player. He, I think the highest level he ever played was junior in college and then an accident or an injury sideline him. So he actually never accomplished even playing in the NBA, not even one game, but he was arguably one of the most influential coaches on Michael Jordan's life. Another example, if you ever get a chance to read the wonderful book, it's called A Trillion Dollar Coach. It's about... Um, Silicon Valley CEOs and the Silicon Valley CEOs, their coach, Bill Campbell. And Bill Campbell was actually an old football coach. He wasn't, he actually did not build a trillion dollar or a billion dollar. I don't even think he even built a million dollar tech company uh, out of Silicon Valley. But he was the coach to all the CEOs of Amazons and the Googles and Asanas and all those tech companies in the tech space in Silicon Valley, out, out of San Francisco area. So, you know what? Here in that case, Bill Campbell really didn't build a 
billion or a trillion dollar coach, but he was able to coach trillion dollar businesses. And then even one final thing is like, let's take it the reverse of that. And here's the reverse. So if that was the case that only the people that are the best doers of something are the best coaches, um, let's take an example in hockey, for example. Arguably speaking, the greatest hockey player who ever lived would be Wayne Gretzky. Why is Wayne Gretzky, why has he failed as a coach? I think he tried with, I think it was Phoenix. And I don't know if he did another time, but why isn't Wayne Gretzky the greatest coach? out there is sometimes the ability to take it from great player to great coach is an entirely new skill set in and of itself. Okay, guys. So once again, just wanted to give you a little bit of insights into the whole world of coaching. Um, wanted to share with you the three types of coaching, the theory coach, the witness coach, and the application coach. All three are applicable. All three will add value. Seek to find the ones that have all three of those and you've got yourself an absolute winning relationship. And then the last thing I wanted to share with you on all of that is remember in any coaching relationship, it is that. It is a relationship. It is a two-way street. As much as the coach you're looking to get from the coach, look at the coach also wants to get something from you. Meaning the coach wants to be inspired. Like that's one of the things I love to see with with the people that I coach is I love sharing their success stories. I love sharing what they're doing because a couple things. Number one, it inspires others. And you know what? Heck, it inspires me. It inspires me to want to do better. It inspires me to a new project. It inspires me into wanting to move the needle forward in my business to be able to help more people and scale this. So I'm trying not to make it about me, but here's the thing is the coaching relationship is that is, is 100% a relationship. Okay. I think I've gone on long enough. My, my editor's probably going to give me crap for going on too long with, uh, with this episode on the intro. So guys, with all that being said, let's get right to it and please help welcome Gary Hibbert. All right, Russell Westcott, the man. What are you doing, my friend? How are you doing? Oh, Gary, how are you? It warms my heart to see you, my friend. Man, I'm nervous, Gary. I'm really nervous here because, you know, like you're you're like your podcast has the likes of Brett Wilson and, you know, you had Les Brown out at one of your events and I'm just sitting there going, holy moly, I'm just Russell from small town Saskatchewan. Just I hope I'm going to keep up with those heavyweights that you got on your show here, my friend. Listen, I, you're going to do incredibly well. I, I know that for sure. And, and you know what? That brings up a, a very important thing that I want to talk about as well, too, because I remember going to those rain events uh, many years ago and seeing you go on stage and presenting in front of, geez, I don't know how many people were there, four, five, six hundred people. And you'd like you'd get up stage on stage and you say, I am so excited to be here. And I couldn't understand that. I'm like, how I'd be like, my knees would be like knocking. And you were such an inspiration. And I just want to say thank you for inspiring me and, and inspiring, I would say, hundreds of thousands of people from your words and what you what you would say on stage. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that. So so Gary, you want a little insider secret, a little bit about that? My, my my knees were were knocking like crazy, <laughs> and I was extremely nervous. And I still get nervous today because this is doing even just a podcast, having a wonderful conversation with a good friend, where you have to quote unquote be on, 
and show up very powerfully. You have to get your alter ego. This is something that takes, it's been trained. I've been trained, I trained myself to do this. So when you would have seen me on those stages in front of those people, that's not natural for me, not in any way, shape or form. I, I had to really prepare. I had to rehearse. I had to get all those butterflies in my stomach flying in formation. I had to do mindset training. I had to do power moves. I had to get, I had to convince myself that what I was feeling was just my body preparing for peak performance. And then I had to forget about myself and be selfless for my presentation slot of an hour, two hour, however long I was. And I just delivered an intention to an audience. And that's all it was. But it's, um, what I'm trying to get to is it was not natural. It is not easy, but it's trainable and it can be definitely be done by anybody. And has, and I'm glad that you bring that up because I think a lot of times people think that it is natural. And a lot of times people do have to work towards that, right? I heard somewhere, and I don't remember where I heard this from, but they say that your gifts, sometimes you have to chisel them out, out of you. And so you do have to work towards it. And so I remember I was having this one conversation with this one lady and she, she wanted to learn about real estate investors. Like, Gary, you know what? I don't know what I can give back to you. I'm like, don't even worry about that. And so we spent like a good hour and a half having a great conversation. And she's like, thank you so much. And uh, she goes, so what do you got going on this weekend? And this is when I was going to have that Les Brown event. And I had to go up on stage and do and present uh, you know, Les Brown. And I'm like, I am so nervous. She goes, I can help you. I go, how? She goes, the chemicals released in your body when you're nervous or excited is exactly the same. So instead of saying you're nervous, just say that you're excited. And I was like, oh my God. And it completely changed my life. Or like I said, it's your body's way of preparing for a peak performance. No different than an Olympic athlete getting into the starting blocks to run the 100 meter dash. That same feeling you're having. They're nervous. They would sit there and they go, but they're not going to be nervous. They have certainty of their training. They have certainty of the work they've done. They have certainty in their coaches. They have the certainty that they're going to get laser beam focused down to the end of that track. And then what they do is they take that energy into a peak performance state. And why do you think world records are set at that time when it's a peak stage for you to be on is because your body is in alignment to your training and it's just now time to show up and perform. Right. Yeah, that's a great point. And that's great insight for people who do have uh, stage fright to kind of listen to what you're what we're, what we're saying here. Right. So well, uh, 100% agree. And, and here's here's what I'm going to tell. I work with a lot of people and, and they self-proclaim that they're painful, shy introverts. And I'm looking at myself when I say that, because I'm left to my own devices. If I didn't have to, I would be happier in a pig and you know what, right? Just reading a book and, you know, watching a good movie and just having family time and just being by myself. In essence, going for my walks, walking my dog, going on our straight, our parks, meditation, just being by myself. That's what I probably is my natural state. But if you think about it, in order to be sometimes in order to be a complete person, there's the yin and the yang, as we're all familiar with. In order to be a complete person, you have to do something completely the opposite in order to balance yourself out. So for me, the complete opposite would be getting in front of a room full of people and sharing a story and being a goofball and telling crappy jokes and just, you know, just sharing from the heart, wearing your heart on your sleeve and just sharing your story, sharing what you're doing. That was the yin to the yang to make, make me feel complete, if you will. And I guess only through, only through age and wisdom that you actually can have a lot of meditation, a lot of therapy, you can actually come to these kind of conclusions, right? 
Right. So listen, let's get into your story for, and I know there's a lot of real estate investors that know who you are, Russell, obviously, but for anybody new and, and that's just kind of starting to, to follow me and maybe just starting to follow you, can you kind of get into your story? What, how, what got you into real estate investing and why? Yeah. Well, I'm going to tell you a different story this time. Like a lot of people in my audience, you know, I've probably have Here's the thing is sometimes we, we answer the same question after a while. We go, well, who wants to hear the same thing over and over again? Um, I'm going to give your audience something extra special here today. I'm going to tell you guys, I'm going to tell you guys a story to your audience of, I don't know if I've shared it too often, maybe once or twice to a very small select group. Okay. So how deep do I go? Okay. The kind of the starting point for me for getting involved in real estate was right around the year 2000, seeing Robert Kiyosaki on Oprah. And I had one of those milestone birthdays, a 30th birthday, okay? And I was just kind of, I was, I was lost. I was struggling. And then Rich Dad, Poor Dad came into my life, and it was kind of an interesting, it was an interesting concept that just kind of set things on different direction. But now I'm going to tell the story I've never really told. So I'm going to take it back into my high school days. And it's amazing how I kind of had at that time, maybe a rich dad story at that time. Okay. The two pivotal moments happened to me back in high school. Number one was, you know, we grew up in small town, Saskatchewan, mobile home park, you know, very limited means. The only opportunities in that small town was either to uh, leave Saskatchewan or work in the potash mine. Okay. And that was the path that I was going on. And then one day uh, in grade 11 chemistry, I sat there and part of their field trip was we were going to go out to the potash mine and we were going to do a trip through the potash mine underneath and underground. And we're going to see how, where it was mined and how it came up. And they brought the potash up into the milling process and got it into eventually into ship it out to go to fertilizer and all that kind of wonderful things. Okay. And I remember going through there and the working conditions and I just sat there and I go, oh my goodness, this is not for me. I just can't do this. I honestly, I saw my future flash before my eyes the next 40 years if I was here and I just could not do it. I just could not see myself doing it. So I remember that night at the dinner table, we were having the family dinner and um, I had a conversation with dad who worked at the potash mine for 40 years. And I just said, dad, I can't work there. I just can't. I cannot see myself doing it because I could just see myself going down the road, working at the potash mine, going to play hockey in the winter with the pirates, going to drink beer at the pub after. And just, I didn't see, you know, marrying the high school sweetheart. And I just couldn't see myself doing that. And I told that to dad as I go, I love you. Thank you for everything you've done and everything you've provided. This is no disrespect to you providing a man providing for our family, but I can't do it. And he looked at me and says, oh, thank goodness. I don't want you to. I wouldn't want that of you. Please get an education, you know, get out of here, get out of town, go do something different with your life. I don't want you to go down that path. Okay. So that was kind of one story was with my dad. The other story was one of the influential teachers in my life, Mr. D, a, a real life Mr. D. Uh, we were sitting in, in phys ed and phys ed was one of my favorite classes because, you know, you got, you know, growing up and as a kid, you played every sport, you're athlete of the year, all that kind of stuff. Mr. D looked at us and said, okay, everybody, what do you guys want to do when you, when you leave here? And I was going, oh, geez, I don't know. You know, I'm thinking about being a coming teacher. And he is a teacher, obviously, phys ed teacher. And he looked at me and he goes, he goes, Russ, he goes, teaching is a mindset and a service. It doesn't have to be a profession. And I said, I don't know what you mean, Mr. D. And he goes, I want you to do something for me. Tomorrow when you come to school, I want you to walk through the teacher's parking lot. And I want you to walk through the student's parking lot and then come in and tell me what you see. 
I go, what are you talking about, Mr. D? I go, you just humor me, walk through those two parking lots. Okay, so I walk through the teacher's parking lot, and then I walk through the student's parking lot, and then I came into the school, and Mr. D says, what did, uh, what did you learn, Russ? And I go, I, I don't know, but man, the students looks like they have nicer cars than the teachers. And he goes, bingo. He goes, teaching is a tough profession to make a living. You have to love it. You have to want it. But it's not a fantastic way of making money and making a living on going forward. Okay, so between those two stories, I decided... I was kind of goofing off in high school, goofing around, getting without even trying. I was getting 70s in my on my marks. And I just decided at that time, okay, I'm going to get into business. I'm going to go to the College of Commerce at the University of Saskatchewan. And in order to get in right out of high school, I needed almost a 90% average to get in. And I was in almost grade 12, uh, second semester, grade 12 type of thing, right? So I actually had to go back and I redid a whole bunch of classes. So I took almost like 12 classes to redo to get my marks up to get over that threshold to get directly into the College of Commerce. Because if I knew that I got to university, if I got into the general arts, I'd probably party too much and have too much fun and play too much hockey and all that kind of stuff that I probably couldn't transfer into commerce. So my only way in was to get in right from the start and they couldn't kick me out if I kept going, right? So long-winded way of saying is over the years, getting into business, getting into real estate investing, getting to be an entrepreneur, at my soul, I'm still a teacher is really what I am. But I'm teaching on a different stage. I'm teaching on a different platform. I'm coaching and I'm mentoring and I'm helping young people up and coming in there. So I'm actually... I'm actually living a very fulfilled purpose on helping and building a business and growing and things like that. And it all stemmed down to some of those conversations I had early on uh, way back in high school. It almost sounds as if now you've started to shift your focus from real estate investing to now doing more, would you say, mentorship and coaching and helping and guiding investors on the path to success and and how to live a fulfilled life. Yeah, 100%. But the interesting thing out of all of that, Gary, is all the wonderful collaborations that are coming with the people that I'm coaching and mentoring and helping. There's just some wonderful collabs that are coming out of on whether it's another kind of a mastermind program or a project that we're investing in together. It's just coming. it's, It's a lot more of a slower, fulfilled process as opposed to when I was in my 30s and it was just all go, 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 buy, buy, buy. Don't be intentional on what I'm doing. Just, you know, just the fear of missing out. Buy this asset. Look at me. Look at me. I bought another 400 places and all that kind of stuff. It's it's a lot more about the impact I'm helping others. And a saying comes to mind, and I probably I forget who's accredited to, but it, it goes something like this. If you've had a blessed life, you need to be a blessing to others. And I've been blessed by so many wonderful coaches and mentors and life lessons on, uh, around real estate and just being on this planet for 50 plus years that I need to be a blessing and share that with other people and share that with the next generation of real estate investors. No different than the next generation of Gary Hibberts, the next generation of Russell Westcott, the next generation of Janes and Sues and that I'm here to pass along the majority of my mistakes and pass along a lot of those blessings to the next generation. And I think this is one of the reasons why I really enjoy doing these podcasts because I get to learn and I get to see other people's path and, and, and the walk through life that they've had. And I think you get to this point and it sounds, and you know, I don't want to put words in your mouth here, but you've created the wealth. 
And so after you've created the wealth, it's like, so what is next? What is the purpose of life? And, and I think that's what I'm now kind of like, I'm searching and I'm looking for that. And, and I think it has to do, and maybe add to this as well too, is being in other people's testimonials. Did you think that has something to do with it? And is there more that you can add to that? Well, you know, I've, I've believed right from the very beginning. And here's something I wrestle with a lot. And this is funny. I had a conversation with one of my clients last night. Where do you draw the line versus helping yourself versus helping others, right? Sometimes, especially I'm self-diagnosing myself, I have, you know, I'm a people pleaser in many respects. And sometimes people pleasers will deflect themselves to the point where they start, it's starting neglecting themselves, but they're, you know, being martyrs and look at me, look at me, how many people I'm helping, right? So it's, it's a really fine line. It's one of those ones that every day I, I struggle with a little bit about what do you do for yourself versus what do you do for others? But what is I've landed on is if I can't take care of myself first and I can't take care of things I have, I'm useless to anybody else. So I have to, it's a fine line between doing what's right for the person versus what's right for the group and the community and all others at the same time. And it's one of those things is I will probably wrestle with that for the rest of my existence on this beautiful planet because, you know, I care about people and I care and I want to help and I want to serve. But at the same time, you know, there's a hunger and there's a, a competitiveness and there's a desire of to want to get something for myself at the same time. So it's it's one of those ones, it's a, it's a very... I don't have the answer, but it's it's one that I'm I'm excited to find out where it will take me. And you know what that reminds me of this quote that Jim Rohn had said is that uh, you know I'll take care of me for you, and you take care of you for me. And it sounds like that's essentially what you're saying is that I can't help you if I don't help myself, or if I don't look after myself, or if I don't keep myself in tip top shape or form. And, and, and it sounds like that's, that's what you're saying. Yeah, but I, and I think there's, um, you know, we can all, and this is, I'm going to say these next things, not out of judgment, just out of observation. But we can all see, for example, let's use an example, like a Grant Cardone, for an example. He has the same message, that help yourself get everything you can and, you know, make as much money, 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 money for yourself so then you can help all the other people. It's got socks on it. Who's got my money today, right? And um, I think that there's, you know, that's on an extreme. Right. And then there might be another extreme. And I'll just use an example. Let's say the other extreme is, you know, let's go Mother Teresa or something like that. Right. I think there's like anything, there's a balance somewhere in between there. But on one hand, as a caring capitalist, I lean a little bit towards the Grant Cardone thing about go help as many other people, make some good capital for yourself, and then by all means, donate to your charities, help other people on their journey, have a fulfillment about leaving a legacy for others, and you'll be remembered more about how many people you help than about all the accolades you have for yourself. Right. No, I agree with that. Now, and this is something I've been I've seen and I've and I've talked to this with a few other real estate investors have, that have been very successful. Was there ever a point in your career, Russell, where you became depressed through real estate investing and acquiring properties? I know I'm probably maybe digging a little deep here, but I think sometimes people get caught up in how many doors they have. And I know because I've started going down that path as well too. Did you ever get to that part or place in your life? Yeah. Well, I I don't hide anything typically. I've I've had I've struggled with some mental illnesses along the way. I've had some serious bouts of depression over the years too. Couple that I had to be early in my early 20s. I was hospitalized at one time. I give credit to mom and dad that just they didn't know what to do with me. 
They just said something was wrong with our son and we don't know what to do. So they just put me in a hospital to just essentially it protected me in many respects that I was having somebody look after me. But I just didn't know what was going on. I just felt that there was I was broken and broken something between my ears and I just couldn't think. And it was just perpetual sadness. And it was okay. It was okay to deal with that. So I've dealt with a few of those along the way. And um, what really helped turn a lot of that around for me was that, you know, just diving into personal development. Soon after that is when I discovered Tony Robbins. I discovered Og Mandino's. I discovered the wonderful, you know, Think and Grow Rich, Napoleon Hill. I discovered a lot of those things that just showed a different path. And then, you know, I, I was on antidepressants. I was on the drugs and I just hated the way I felt. I actually felt worse on the drugs than, than I thought off of them. And I just said, I'm going to try to just fix this myself. And there's come some times on the portfolio is, here's the thing, um, a lot of people, let's bring it back to real estate. A lot of people will talk about long-term buying for the long-term. I mean it for the long-term. The majority of people that are probably listening to this are maybe five years or less, okay? You will have ups, you will have downs, you will have times when you just want to just get rid of everything and you hate your real estate. And that's a strong word. I've had to a couple times fall back in love again with my portfolio over a course of 20 years. There's been a couple different cycles that I've had, especially, you know, guys, and I'm going to talk to maybe some Ontario people right now more than anything. Things are good right now. Things are going gangbusters. And you bought a place in November and you're refinancing it in March and it went up 150000 bucks. Look at me. I, I am the king of the world. What happens if it goes the other direction? Do you tie your emotional perspective to the, what the market does? Because markets go in cycles. I'm not saying it's going to happen today or tomorrow. It might not even be 20 years from now, but it markets have cycles. And I've been through some market cycles that were fairly challenging to the point. And I, I remember like yesterday, I was in a market, um, Edmonton, Alberta is where I invest. And uh, markets for three years in a row, I think the, and I might get the numbers not 100% correct, but follow me if you will. One, one year was like plus 17, the next one was plus 34, and then plus 58 for a three-year run, like just on fire. And I remember like it was yesterday, it was, um, it was August, I think it was 20 to 2008. House sales and prices dropped for the first time in 10 years was the headline in there. And I said, oh, finally, it's taking a breath. Um, House prices have not recovered to that price point of properties that I bought in 2008. Today in 2021, um, the house price is still not at that price point. And matter of fact, in some cases, and I know some people, it's significantly less. Yeah. And, and you know what? And you bring up a good point there as well, too. And because what I want to add to that as well is that now because the market is so great, because it's so hot. Now you've got all these real estate gurus that are popping up. And so to add to what you're saying, and yeah, some, some of the people, most of the people that are going to be listening to this may only be five or six years into it. What do they look for? How do they spot the ones that are legitimate as opposed to the ones that are just trying to maybe potentially pick their pocket? Um, here's here's the what I would suggest on the gurus and people that have been through it. I would suggest that you look for people who have been through it. Ask the question, what market conditions have you been? Have you what I would call cycled? 
meaning you've had rapid appreciation, you've had flats, and you've had declining markets, and you've had everything in between, okay? Listen to the people that have, pardon, if the gray hairs and the gray, you know, gray hairs and gray beards and people that have been through it that have gone through each one of those cycles and are not afraid to tell you the mistakes that they've made along the process and that they have made mistakes and they have stepped on landmines and they're willing and they will share that with you from a context not to scare you, but on a context of a cautionary tale to help you not to do the same things right? I wish I would have met me in many respects. I wish I would have met the 50-year-old me when I was in my 30s the same time. Now, I say that. I say that I wish I would have met me, but in my 30s, I probably wouldn't have listened to me. I would have been too driven by my ego and too stupid and too naive. And I would say, what does that old guy know? Ah, he doesn't care. He's just an old guy and he's been around the block. He's trying to, you know, trying to get me to slow down. Nobody's going to slow me down. I'm invincible. I'm bulletproof, right? So, but it wouldn't have stopped the 50-year-old me telling my 30-year-old me is just still listen to me, right? Whether you do it or not, that's up to you. That's your choice, but I'm going to still tell you. And that's where I give a lot of the credit to a lot of the um, younger coaching clients that I'm working with, that um, they are seeking the wisdom of people that have been through it and they are listening and they're being very, very coachable at the same time. And me as the coach, I'm trying to show them the path but I'm trying to get them to walk the path, but they also has to be their ideas. It has to be their decisions. It's not somebody mandating and dictating and telling them what to do. It's somebody sharing with them the path, but they have to be the one walking it. Right. There was uh, a quote from Ross Perot, and it was something along the lines that success lies on the razor edge of failure, which I thought was very interesting. Right. Because, you know, and I think it kind of is going along the lines of what you're saying as well, too, that, you know, everything is going so good. And so now you start to over leverage and you're buying more properties and all of a sudden the market changes or something happens. And then all of a sudden you see it, you know, that happened even back in like the Great Depression or you see it like even not even that far back, go back to 2008, where people actually do take their lives where they're so high and they cannot take that drop and, and, and the lows. And so it is important to, to get the coaching and the mentoring from somebody who is successful and who has gone through some of these cycles, right? I would add to Ross's quote, I 100% agree. I would say it's actually a prerequisite in many respects. You need to go through the failures in order to achieve the success because it truly is going back to the yin and the yang of things. It's sometimes it's the silence between the notes that creates the music right? You need, in order to define your heights of success, you need to have the opposite of some of the despairs of the defeat at the same time. And some of the people, every person you'll ever find that has made something of themselves can go back to a moment where something happened, something they, they had a, you know, don't mean to get biblical or anything, but maybe they had a coming to Jesus moment, if you will. And they had one of those crucible moments in their life that it turn things around. But in order to get to the light, you have to go through the dark. Right. And the thing too, with mistakes and, and mishaps are, I, I truly believe they're gifts. They are, the problems are gifts that allow you to now acquire new and additional skill sets that are going to be able to now allow you to open those bigger gifts 
that whoever you believe in, whether it's God or your maker, is going to give and present to you, right? Absolutely. And we're talking gifts, not those little memes that you put on the, you click on there, not the GIF, <laughs> like the GIFs, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Let's kind of pull it back to real estate as well too, right? And, and, I, and I want to talk more about building and growing this portfolio because so many people do get caught up in acquiring more properties. And there was something that I saw recently that you were talking about in regards to where you only really need to have three properties free and clear which I think is a, can be a bit of a, maybe a, a curse word nowadays, right? Well, it's, it's funny. <laughs> a, a lot of people in today's day and age, and people fight me on this, uh, you know, it's okay. Everybody's in different phases. I believe eventually there has to be a plan to pay back all this borrowed money, right? Because you can't keep refining until you die because things come in cycles again and interest rates are low and probably interest rates will stay low. We may be in a, a low interest rate environment for I, who knows. But maybe sometimes we'll swing when interest rates go up, interest rates go down. And if you had a portfolio of properties, free and clear, honest to goodness, who cares what the interest rate does? Your main thing is, um, you do you have it with good customers and you're treating your customers really well? And here's the story I tell a lot of people. Many people, for example, yourself, Gary, you, you invest into multifamily space and you're doing some apartment building investing, correct? No, I'm not. Oh, you're not? Okay. So, so, so a lot of people in your audience do. I was going down that route and then I quickly switched and I just went to private lending. Now, it's not a right or wrong strategy. It's just, I think, what suits your lifestyle. But I definitely was going down that route and I stopped. Got it. So let's put it this way. So if you're negotiating to buy either an apartment building or maybe a property that was built in the 80s and it's the original owner and they have it free and clear, first of all, trying to find the owner is difficult because they're retired and they're somewhere usually warm in the winter when we can travel. They don't have a care in the world. They don't have too much stress with what they're dealing with because they have the cash flow from the properties and they're not really worried about too much out of life. And, and here's a fun story. One of my, my clients was negotiating on an 11-unit apartment building and uh, only three of the 11 units had tenants in it. So I would vacancy. That's like based, you know, what, 30% is full. He's negotiating with the owner and he just said to the owner, he goes, well, why don't you just fill the other units? And he goes, well, why would I want to fill those other units? And I'd have so much more taxes to pay and so much more headache. So here was an owner that was free and clear that was cash flowing, making money off of only three properties out of 11 filled. So that is somebody who is free and clear versus somebody who's maybe levered up to 90% to the hilt private lending, a balloon payment coming on this kind of thing. And they're stressed out of their gourd to try to figure out how they're going to do it. And oh my goodness, if my appraisal doesn't come in at 1.4 million, I don't know what I'm going to do. Right? right. Did you see You're the right, difference right. in, in that? So, so what I usually help people out is, and I don't, what's the plan? Like what truly is the plan for you to eventually have some assets that are free and clear, because the reason why we get into real estate is to create the lifestyle. It's not to own lots of real estate. It's not to have another job as a landlord. It's not to be stressed out of your tree about maybe a tenant that's not paying. It's not to be, you know, all those kind of things. It's not to go, you know, be your pro self-management on things. It's you want the lifestyle. So let's reverse engineer the plan. And the plan that I put in front of a lot of people typically is you know, with three free and clear suited houses, you can have an income stream of about $90,000 a year, and it's about $1.8 million as an asset, okay? And when you say suited, because I know... Do, you would call them duplexes. 
Exactly. So I just want to make sure for anybody who is, is new to this, they understand what sweeted is. Yes. Yeah. So I remember I was at a rain event and somebody was saying they had sweeted properties. And then I turned, I'm like, Sweden. Yeah. Why are you buying properties in Sweden? <laughs> well, it's like <laughs> sweet, Gary. They're sweet. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's uh, out okay. west. Out west, we call them houses with suites. Out east, you guys typically right. call them duplexes, or and then some right. cases two semis, units. Yeah. things like that. Right. But in order to get to that point in say fifteen years, you have to probably acquire about nine properties. And a and then over a five now, now nine single or suited properties. I would say nine suited houses. Nine. Okay. Stuff, okay. Yep. Now with any plan and any uh, case study, there's so many variables and and you know the good old saying that Mike Tyson said everybody has a plan until you get punched in the mouth. Right. This is in theory, and this is a plan, and this is what I help a lot of people walk through. Is let's try to acquire nine properties in a five year period. Okay. And then that's the first five-year window. The second five-year window... And let me just jump in there as well there too, Russell. And can they be joint ventures as well too? Or do they got to be on their own just for clarity? Well, ideally it would be on your own. But most people here probably don't have access to a million and a half bucks in capital. So you probably have to do joint ventures. Then what I share with people, instead of you owning a $450,000 house, you have only a $225,000 asset. And it still can be done. Still can be done. Okay. Right. So your first five years is you you buy nine places with yourself or partners or family or however you you can. The second five-year phase, you manage them really well. You start paying down some mortgages. You optimize the rents. You get good tenants. Maybe at that time, you do some make money strategies. You do some wholesaling. You do some flipping. You learn a a strategy on how to, uh, you know, make some more money from your properties at that time. And then what you do is you start snowballing a mortgage. Like you pick one of the properties and you start paying it down. And then you take from that and then you keep paying down some debt. And then at the end of the second five years, so you're into it for 10, you potentially look to sell six properties off. You take the the proceeds after taxes, joint venture partners, banks, everybody's paid back. You take the money from the sale of those six places. And in theory, there should be enough that you can pay the mortgages off on the last three places and you have three places free and clear. And then from there, you have $100,000 a year income stream and almost $2 million in assets in the pension plan. Right. And see, and then what you're really kind of sharing there, Russell, is that you don't need to have that many no. properties. You don't need to have that many doors. You don't need to, you know, get up to a hundred or 200. And again, I'm not knocking that. I know there's lots of people that do enjoy doing that and, and that's fantastic. But, you know, for the average person, that's not what they're looking to do. And they, they just want this. Is it mathematically possible for me to retire off of real estate? And you're saying it oh, is. 100%. And here's the thing, Gary, and I I did in that model, I don't build in an astronomical appreciation model either. I build in 2%. With a 2% market growth, which in essence is inflation, well, let's not get talked about this joke of inflation number at the moment, but with a 2% market appreciation over that time, those numbers are very real. Now, just imagine if you had a uh, 15% one year, or you had a 7% one year, or you had all those kind of things, that plan could potentially be escalated or, or moved up and be quicker, or maybe you have more assets at the end. Okay. But let's take a nice conservative. Uh, one of my early mentors, Terry Peranich, who I think he owns, geez, I think he's like a couple hundred free and clear properties. He coined the phrase, be the turtle in fifth gear. 
slow and steady, but at a good pace, like in fifth gear, as fast as you can go, but nice and slow and steady. Right. No, that, and that's good. And, 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 and I'm really glad you kind of went through that case study because I think it'll, it'll help people to say, yes, you can actually do this, right? Now, do you mind, Gary, if anybody of your listeners, I, I know I went through that fairly quickly. I actually broke that into like a five-hour presentation, in essence. Do you mind if I mention my YouTube channel or podcast? No, no, go ahead and do that. And if you can also, too, send me the exact link. Okay. And I'll make sure it gets added into the show notes as well, too. Okay. So if you go to my YouTube channel, which is just YouTube Russell Westcott, there's a playlist that has, it's a five-part series. If you like the visual side of things, if you like to listen to it, um, if you just go to my podcast, Russell, the Russell Westcott podcast, I think it's episode 34 to 39. Okay. I believe that's where it is. So I just broke that out and I just put that there. I just give it to everybody. Like, I'll just give it to you. So essentially, the step one is to put the plan together. Step number two is what obstacles are you going to have to bust through? And one of the biggest obstacles is the money. And then I first steps three, four, and five, I talk about how do you raise the money. Right. No, that'd, that'd be definitely helpful for sure. We'll make sure we get that in the show notes as well. And, and here's the thing as well too, right? Just adding to that, you know, you're using that very conservative appreciation. And, and this is where I think people can get real caught because out here in, Durham, in the Durham region, like 35% year over year is absolutely crazy. And so now people might start putting these numbers in their performance and think, hey, you know, what's going to do that again next year. But while I'm on this, actually, too, I want to go into a new kind of area here, just in regards to where do you see things going with the printing of money and where the real estate market is heading? Do you do you have some caution there? Are you maybe kind of saying, yeah, no, you know what? Now's a good time to continue to invest in real estate. What, what's what's your thoughts on everything that's happening in the world today? Let's put it this way. Uh, I guess the simplest way to put it is I'm cautiously optimistic. But I say that on one side, but on the other hand, I'm very bullish in my actions in certain markets that I'm dealing with. And let me let me just fully unpack this a little bit. I firmly believe a couple things. Number one, when you know all H-E double hockey sticks break loose, like we've had over the last year and however long that goes, where did people tell us to go, right? When the stuff hits the fan, you go home, right? And people are now looking at their homes more than ever as, you know, the, the house and the sanctuary. So there will always be a need for housing, always, okay? And I firmly believe in Canada, we actually probably have a shortage of housing because of government regulations and red tapes and all this kind of stuff. ALRs, land reserves, all that kind of stuff. I believe that we actually have a housing shortage for number one. Okay, so I'm very bullish there, first of all. Number two is I'm very bullish is uh, once some of these things that we're going through right now get lifted, there's going to be a lot of capital that's been sitting there. You don't think that the moment all these things get lifted, everybody's going to be booking a vacation. Everybody wants to go out and travel. Everybody's going to get in their car and just go drive to be free again and human, if you will, right? There's going to be a lot of economic stimulation that's going to happen just from natural consumption, natural growth. There's also going to be lots of programs in place to rebuild roads, rebuild things, get people working, just make sure people are working. So those are the first two. Number three is... um, Canada is a net importer of people, okay? Essentially, our immigration has turned off for the last year and a bit. So there are reports of, I probably get the number wrong, but it was, was it 1.8 million or something like that of net immigration that's going to be coming into this country? 
So lots of people are going to be coming in. Lots of people will need houses. Lots of people, when they're coming into the country the first time, they typically might not buy. They might rent for three years. So are you able to give them some uh, some housing at the same time? Okay. And then the final thing I would say is the most important thing is, is make sure when you are acquiring your assets that you need to have cash flow from your properties. Because all those things that I said long-term that I'm very bullish on, you have to be able to survive to get there. Because if you take on a property, let me share with a real-life example. I have a client of mine out in Vancouver. We were doing a portfolio review. And I was, let's let's call him Tom to protect the innocent. I sit there and I'm looking at his portfolio review. He's got 11 places. You know, by all means, has done very, very well. One of his goals is to generate, uh, I think it was $10,000 a month in net income so he could potentially take start retiring. And I go, okay, awesome. So we're looking at his portfolio and I go, tell me about this one place you have in the lower mainland of BC. I go, geez, it's 1.4 million. You know, is that right? Am I looking at it? It's negative 800 bucks a month. And he goes, yeah, yeah. And he told me the story why he can't let it go and he likes to keep it and all that kind of stuff. And I said, okay, Tom, let's, let's do this. Let's say you sold that place and with the capital you would get from that, and let's just move it over to a new marketplace over where I invest in Edmonton. And there's some fantastic opportunities. I showed him a place where he could get into a brand new eight unit place. So essentially four semis with suites, eight suites. Okay. Cash flow on that was 2,200 bucks a month. So he went from negative 800 to a positive 2200. He just changed his cash flow position by $3,000 a month. And he's into a completely different asset class, into a really nice performing property. He just on one transaction without even getting any more money, he just took the money that he had in one property, selling the one place, moving it over to a different marketplace is already 30% of the way to his target of 10 grand a month. Right. And that's why sometimes it's really helpful to have those mentors and somebody that can kind of help with that bird's eye view and to try to help remove that emotional piece out of it. Right. Because it it sounds like there was something emotional that he had tied to it and you were able to kind of help clear or give him clear vision of what he was actually trying to accomplish and where that finish line was for him, right? Yeah, just it's just coming back to just doing this intentionally, right? Just having a plan, having intentional and and I have those conversations all day long with whether they're clients or consultations or people. And I, I'm it's put this way, I'm I'm happy to have those kind of conversations with people to if you can turn somebody's situation around by that from negative 800 to essentially a $3,000 swing, that's, those are some good wins, right? Right. Now, can you talk a little bit more because you are the joint venture Jedi, right? And I, I just want to touch a little bit on that um, because as we all know, Russell, that when you're investing in real estate, you're going to hit that brick wall eventually. Are there some tips that you can share just in regards to joint ventures, where to find people, how to structure it? Like just, you know, some of them maybe like three, two or three tips like to, to help people. Yeah. You know, there's, that's a, a deep one in and of itself. And I imagine, geez, I could write a book about that. Hink, wink, sure wink, nudge, nudge. <laughs> <laughs> I, and I have wrote a oh, book. You, on you got a book right behind you. You got a book yeah, right behind yes, you. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm sorry for the soft pander there, but <laughs> no, here's the best thing I would, number one is, you have to first get clear on why you'd want to do it. Like, I don't have an attachment if people ever want to do a joint venture ever in their life, ever. One of my clients, he just says, I will never, ever do a joint venture. I don't want to involve any other people. And I go, okay, so no problem. Tell me about your goals. 
okay, here's your goals. Here's your goal. Okay. There's a shortfall here of the capital that you're going to need. What's, what's your thought process? Well, I will not bring on other people. Okay. No problem. And then slowly working together over a couple months, three, four months, he was just saying, you know, I'm taking some of this action. He had some capital to go buy and acquire some properties on his own, but he then hit that wall. And he goes, and there's still a shortfall about how many properties he will need to buy. Like, okay, do you want to enter the conversation about bringing on other people, other people's capital? And he goes, nope, still not going to do it. Got to do it myself. Like, okay, no problem. No problem. But slowly, as he's acquiring these properties, friends, family coming to talk to him and they're going, Pete, what's going on? You're buying all these real estate. And he just enthusiastically sharing with them about the deals that he's doing. And he's just, he's just on fire. Like he's just loving it. And people feed off that and they go, geez, I would love to, if you ever come up with a deal or something like that, I'd, I'd love to hear about it. Okay. And I said, I go, they just gave you a buying signal. Why don't you let them have an opportunity to partner with you? They go, nope, we'll not do it. I go, okay, no problem. Um, he owns a business and some of the young people in his business are coming to him and they're just going and they find out, you know, Pete's buying some real estate and they go, geez, I'm just having a struggle. I probably won't be able to get into a property down the road and all this kind of stuff. And so what he's doing with some of these young people, finally, what triggered to him was this is an opportunity to him to help some young up and coming people to get a step into the real estate market. So finally, what clicked for him was that it needs to be in service. He's not asking for money from anybody. He's providing an opportunity to help somebody who couldn't have done it on their own. That's finally what clicked. So the first tip I would say is just be clear on why you're doing it, okay? And make sure it's coming from a place of helping and service, not from a standpoint of look at me, look at me, look how many properties I'm buying. I'm the greatest thing since sliced bread. I'm going to get on everybody's podcasts and, you know, let me brag about all the properties I'm buying. So it's just that, coming- That's such a powerful point. It, it really is, right? Because, and that was, and I think for that, really what you're saying as well too, is like, come on this journey with me. Yes. I, I don't, I, I want you to be with me. I don't want you to be behind. And I like that, that that's very powerful. So good point. Number one, I love that one. And so, so number one is be intentional with what you're doing. Number two is I would just fall in love with the process, fall in love with real estate, listen to amazing podcasts like you're listening to right now, dive into other people's podcasts, listen to it, you know, not only consume all the content, but do something about it, okay? And then just fall in love with the minutiae, fall in love with the monotonous day-to-day grind, and over time, it will eventually start clicking in place for you. And just be very proud to just having conversations with people about things that you just are loving, things that you're learning. Teach it, in essence. You know, I'm not telling you to go out and create a course and charge thousands of dollars and being a mentor. Just teach somebody what you just learned by, I just listened to this wonderful podcast. Here's the five things I just heard from it. Here's the three things I'm going to do about it. And I just wanted to just share this with you. And then what you're just doing is you're just sharing your journey with other people that may want to work with you down the road. Right. And then the final thing I would say is, um, is look at it from a long term right? If you're um, feeling that it's just not moving quick enough right now, just take a step back, understand that this is a, it's a, a marathon distance at a sprinter's pace in many respects. Okay. But just understand that you're in it for the long term and you're just going to learn 
and you're just going to implement. And the more people that stay in the game and the more people that execute against what they learn will be the ones that get the rewards at the end. Great tips. Really powerful. I like that. Three people or three books that touched you, that changed your life, that has allowed you to, to be where you are today and to, and, and to continue to want to grow and help other people. Uh, I've given you a few already. I'm, I'm going to come at this from a different perspective. Um, I'm going to 100% answer your question. So let's, let's, take, let's take a couple that maybe you haven't heard of. The five-second rule, Mel Robbins, was a wonderful book. At help. It's it's something as a mindset. It's almost so cheesy when you read it and just go, I can't believe how stupid and cheesy it is, but it works. Yep. Okay. The five okay. second rule. The next is The Obstacle is the Way by Ryan Holiday. And a third one would be, I would say, what was the last one I just read was, um, oh, it's called Skip the Line. So essentially, how to shortcut the, your learning curves on things. James Altucher is a wonderful author as well. He uh, One of his early books was called Choose Yourself. So I'll give you three that probably none of your guests have ever shared. Everybody shares Think and Grow Rich and Rich Dad, Poor Dads Rich Dad and stuff. Yeah. But, but I want to give you three that are off, off script a little bit. I like that. I like that. Now, the other thing as well, too, I think a lot of people have such a difficult time, I think, planning out their day or they feel like they... They're caught up in that busyness. How do they get clarity? Or it, it, does it start with a morning routine? How do they get things moving in the right direction? Oh, great question. Uh, I, yeah. I, I mean, I even I even struggle with that from from time to time as well, too. Yeah, it comes down to what I tell a lot of my clients. It comes down to an alignment of it's an exercise I walk people through. It's usually the first step of the process when we work together. Is I get people to put their vision boards together. Then I get them to work on their core values, and then I get them to work on their five and 12-month goals, and then what we set up is the next telephone poles. And that's the story I use about with, you know, it's an analogy with Terry Fox about how did Terry Fox plan to run across this great country and raise money for cancer research. His only focus is on the next telephone pole, okay? So that's kind of the process I get people to be completely aligned. But then what I get people to do is every day... Whether you have a tool, the tool I use is a high performance planner by Brendan Bouchard. And what I do every day is I will put all my, it's not, this won't be for good podcasting, but I, I will put all my appointments in here. I will put all my top goals. I will write out, I put my four areas of priority and I will put five things I need to do today, which match up to my four priorities, which then align with my 12 month goals, which then aligns with my core values, which aligns with my vision board. Okay. And each and every day I will do this to in the morning. It's the first thing I do in the morning after I have my cup of coffee and, you know, go to the bathrooms and all those fun things is just plan the day. And then my entire day is to just go through and just take the action to win the day. And it's easier said that it's, it's simple to say it's easy. It's difficult to do. Right. And some of the times when I'm working with some of my clients, they might get the plan in place. And anytime anybody ever gets stuck, it comes down to, they're just not clear on the five things they have to do today, and they're not doing them, okay? So, for example, I'll give you a, a quick story. Um, client of mine was just feeling, he was just, I use the term, the popcorn has stopped popping, right? Meaning that we're losing a little bit of steam and the momentum here. So, let's get a new batch of popcorn in, and let's start getting the popping going again. So, what he needed was every day at 6.30 in the morning, he had to send me a text message of the top three things he had to get done today, which were in alignment with his goals, his values, and his vision. 
Okay. And then tomorrow at 6.30 in the morning, he has to send me how he did on yesterday's task and what he's doing today. So every day at the same time, with the same discipline and the same rigors, he has to do that action and send that. And that's my phone. And that's, I'm talking 6.30 Eastern time when I get that, that note. And I'm on the West Coast. Okay. What it is, in order, if you're feeling stuck and you're feeling stalled, get into the action and getting into the accountability of having to report to somebody the action. Right. So you're still big on paper-based or, or do you do anything electronic? Uh, I, I do a little bit of both, but here's the thing is I like the, the book and the paper because it gives me the tactileness. That's such a word. It gives me the writing it out Yeah. and going from heart, or I guess it would be head to heart to hand, or is that heart to head to hand? I guess it has to be a physical activity of doing right. The analogy I maybe would use is you can watch a, you can have an electronic workout and watch it, or you can actually go to the gym and do the pushup. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. You know what? I'm big on writing it down as well, too. So, I mean, I've got my agenda here and what I'm always doing too, especially if I'm, I'm working on something and something comes into my mind, I'm always just dumping things. I want to keep my mind clear. I'm not trying to have to ever remember anything because once it's in, once it's in paper form or written down, there's only four things I was taught that you can ever do with it is either you do it, you defer it, you delegate it, or you delete it. Yeah. And I think, I, I think it's a combination of everything. So I definitely 100% use this thing a lot. And I call that the future things that come down to like my calendar, honest to goodness, I'm booking things eight, 12 weeks out all the time. And then that's just getting putting into my calendar digital. But when it comes time to the day, to win the day, I pull out this phone, I put in my appointments that are non-negotiable appointments that I have to deliver. And then I still have to fit those five things out around this into it. And now when I say five things, I'm not talking about, you know, taking out the trash and going grocery shopping and stuff like that. I'm talking about what I call needle moving activities that are in alignment with your top priorities with things. And sometimes you have a big giant project and you can't complete it in one day. So I'll get them to do is, okay, how many time blocks are you going to put into this project? For example, let's say I'm negotiating a new insurance on all my properties. Okay. And I'm getting a new quote on the whole portfolio because I probably can save a couple thousand bucks on, on things like that. You're not going to get it all done in one day of pulling all the information. So what would you, how many time blocks are you going to do today? And I get them to chunk it down into either a 25 or a 50 minute time block. Okay. And then, so then they'll say, okay, what I'm committing to today is to do two 25 minute time blocks. So 50 minutes in total to work through this project. And the goal is probably to be done next week. I feel like I just got a mentorship program for you in the last hour. I think we should just call this podcast, How to Win the Day. I mean, you know, then, then we, we did touch on real estate investing, but I, think, but I think what we touched on today was very important and also powerful because, you know, real estate investing is one piece, but there's also the other piece as well, too, which you touched on a lot and is, is the mindset and, you know, what you need to do on a regular basis and the books that you need to read or the podcast. So everything that we, that you touched on, I think is incredibly important, Russell. And, I, and thank you for sharing all of your knowledge. I really do appreciate it. Well, here, here's what I share with uh, a lot of the people I work with is um, I love the result. I'm crazy. And we get really attached to delivering a result. But to me, more important than the result you accomplish is who you become in the process of delivering a result. 
And do you like the person at the end who you become? And usually when I have a coaching client, my goal is with that coaching client is to graduate them that they don't need me, that they now have the skill set to be able to accomplish any goal they set their mind to. And then I also know at that time, typically when it's time to graduate uh, a coaching relationship, is we typically start collaborating on projects together. And I just love the people I'm collaborating on, on whether it's a real estate project or a book project or something. I'm working with this young fellow uh, out there and he's, we've been working together for two years and he's putting the work together, building on a mastermind. And I'm helping him with all that. I will contribute, but we're collaborating on that as well. Right. I like that. This, you know, who you becoming. That reminds me of a Jim Rohn quote. I love Jim Rohn. He goes, uh, make the goal to become a millionaire, not for the money, but for the person you will become to achieve it. Yeah. And I believe he also said something is, don't be just come a person that can accomplish one goal, become a person that can accomplish every goal. Yeah. Russell, I really enjoyed the conversation we had today. Um, Any last piece of advice that you'd like to share? Do, Do you have a moment for a story, Gary? I got a moment for a story. Go ahead. Okay. Okay. So this, I'm going to describe this a little bit for the listeners of the podcast over my shoulder for one of those you've seen, there's a saying that says called, it's called shoot the puck. Okay. It's a signature kind of story that resonated with me a long, long time ago. So I actually had, it's funny way back in the day and I tell all these stories and now there's a new generation of people go, what's this shoot the puck? And I, I go, I thought everybody kind of knew that story. And I said, well, maybe it's time to bring it out again. So way back, I, I grew up playing hockey and I would sit there and I would go through, I, you know, I was a very good stick handler at the time, you know, go, I, uh, they called me dipsy doodle, if you will. I could just dipsy doodle throughout the entire team and go around, but I would never ever shoot the puck. Like I would just never shoot on net. And I don't know why I just n- didn't take the shot on net. And I remember, uh, so, so you can probably guess how many goals I scored at that time. I scored nothing, right? The old time, maybe I got lucky. Maybe there's a rebound, had a couple things. I deked the entire team out, but I would just never shoot the, shoot the puck. So there was our constable in that time who, you know, George Francis, coach, uh, big, authoritative constable. Like he was the sergeant, I mean, he was the sergeant of arms at the, at the police. He was the coach. And I remember sitting there going, Westcott, shoot the puck. Hey, so I just remember that always. So it just like, ah, so finally I started shooting the puck a lot more. And, you know, lo and behold, the the puck actually started going in the net. And it's an analogy I bring out for a lot of people. If you're just scared to just move forward with what you're doing, shoot the puck. If you miss the net, just go get the rebound and let's just dig it out and let's go after it again. But just take that action, keep moving forward, keep shooting the puck. And the more pucks you get on net, the more you actually goals you will score. Love it. That's a great way to end a podcast. What's the best way for anybody that's listening to get a hold of you, Russell? Well, the simplest way is if you just Google my name and russellwestcott.com is kind of the hub of everything that's going on with me. There's That's where the podcast, the YouTube, everything is kind of branded around my name. Uh, which will make it difficult for me to eventually sell that business down the road, but uh, it's easy to find. All right, Russell, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Honestly, I think I think it was a great podcast. I learned some new new things from you and uh, we'll definitely do this again, my friend. Oh, I look forward to it. All right, take care. All right, so what did you think? Did you thoroughly enjoy that conversation as much as I did? 
Now, Gary, if you're listening to this, I'm not sure if you do or not, or you subscribe. Hopefully you do. Um, just want to thank you. Want to thank you for being such a wonderful host. Want to thank you for putting out some amazing content. Want to thank you for being an inspiration and just putting it out there and just helping others on their journey as well. Okay, gang, what was some of the biggest takeaways you got from that conversation? Maybe jot them down. More importantly than jot them down, make a plan to execute against them. Okay, that's what I encourage you from any of these podcast episodes that you listen to is be inspired, uh, be entertained, be educated. But more importantly, if there was something you got from it and it moved you to write it down, get into action, move forward, make that phone call, write that email, send a text, send a thank you, put a review in, do something with it. Okay. Now, one final thing I'm just going to mention here, if any of you are interested in some coaching, obviously, if you've been following along on my podcast, I coach some of the highest performing real estate investors, business entrepreneurs, people that just want to live kick butt lives. And if you are interested and you think you will fall in that camp and you're looking for a little bit more in your life and maybe you want some help taking it to the next level for yourself, reach out. If you jump onto my website or wherever you're listening to this podcast, there will be an opportunity for a consultation. After you hit the button for a free consultation, you'll be asked a few questions just so I can really hone in on what you're looking for so I can help you. And then we'll have a conversation. And if coaching is in your realm, if you're looking for, like I mentioned at the beginning, that theory coach, the witness coach, and the application coach, I can definitely help you out. I believe I have that combination and I believe that I can help you take it to the next level, but you have to make the first step to move forward. Okay, gang, if you are interested in moving forward, hit that link, get a consultation spot if they're available, and we'll have the conversation and help you move forward. Okay, gang, you know how we end off each and every one of these podcasts in every interaction you have with another person. Always. Always, always leave them feeling inspired, encouraged, and always come from a place of love. Bye for now, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Russell Westcott Podcast. Before you run off, could you do us one final favor? Wherever you're listening to this episode, we encourage you to leave a review, share with your friends, and subscribe so you can receive the latest episode to keep you feeling inspired and encouraged for the entire week. Visit www.russellwestcott.com for more information, support resources, and upcoming speaking engagements near you. Bye for now. Bye for now.